Hello, I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. And we are What Doctors Don't Tell You. And welcome to the latest podcast, vlogcast. And um, interesting, we've got a good theme this this week, Lynn. Um, you know, the more we research medicine and health, the more we get back to the gut and just how important the gut is in so many diseases that um, you wouldn't suspect would be influenced by the gut microbiome, the, the good and the bad bacteria in the gut, but actually they are. So we're going to kick off with three stories this week, which are related to the gut, which I know you have plenty to tell us about, Lynn. And the first one is osteoarthritis. Now, you know, there's probably quite a lot of our older listeners who are suffering from it, and uh, they've been told by their doctor that it's a inevitable consequence of getting older, that it's wear and tear, and, you know, the best they can do, really, is take an anti-inflammatory, keep the pain under some degree of control until such time as the joint wears enough that they can replace it. And that seems to be the almost the inevitable consequence of the disease, the progression of this, this disease. But uh, some researchers were looking at um, what happens when the artificial knee or joint is actually in place. And they've discovered that they can be attacked by bacteria from the gut. It's not a very common occurrence. It happens in about 1% of cases, but nonetheless, it does happen. And when you look at the number of hip and knee operations that take place every year, there's still about 10,000 uh, replacement uh, joints that are going to be getting infected by gut bacteria. And what they're saying is that, well, you know, what we have to do before we even begin surgery is making sure the patient has a healthy gut so that it isn't going to attack the joint. But, you know, I think they've left on the table the, the, the most important aspect of this, which is that, yes, it's attacking the false joints, but is it also attacking the actual joints, the healthy joints, the actual biological joints? Are they also being attacked by gut bacteria? And if they are, suddenly completely changes the whole scenario, the whole thing of the, what we think osteoarthritis is, because suddenly it's nothing to do with wear and tear and growing old and all the rest of it, but it's everything to do with infection. And that infection comes from a bad gut. And I know we've done a lot of work on this before, Lynn, so this is not an enormous revelation to regular readers, but maybe you could just refresh us and tell us about what we've discovered before. This is absolutely true, mm. that um, many cases of osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis are caused by some sort of rogue bacteria. And many doctors who are working at the forefront of both kinds of arthritis are discovering this. For instance, there is a bacteria called Klebsiella. And for certain people who have a genetic propensity toward it, but also the general pop population too, this nasty little bacteria can cause all kinds of arthritis, including ankylosing spondylitis, um, arthritis of the spine that also can affect other parts of the body. And this is now known and has been researched by a number of researchers at, um, at academic institutions showing 
that when you starve this bacteria, for instance, with a low starch diet, the patient can improve. And we, in, in fact, wrote about a guy called Sean Codling some years ago who did just that. Um, but there are some other bacteria, too, associated with arthritis and other autoimmune diseases. Mm. And so we're starting to see that things like um, Hashimoto's disease, um, which creates an underactive thyroid, is an autoimmune disease. And there are certain bacteria associated with that. For instance, Helicobacter pylori, which is the bacteria that's always associated with um, ulcers, can cause a thyroid issue. And so can a good old candida albicans overgrowth. So we're finding that certain bacteria cause havoc in certain ways in the body. And that probably the first port of call, whenever you're looking at any of these puzzling illnesses, is check out the person's the state of the person's gut. That's mm, interesting because I mean we've done stories about osteoarthritis and sufferers who are you know, young men mm -hmm. suffering from this problem. And and you know, they've not had a history of sports or sports injury. And yet they've developed osteoarthritis sometimes as early as their 30s. And, you know, that sort of, again, turns on its head the, the wear and tear theory, yeah. that, that it can't be that. There must be something else going on. And, um, but, you know, and I think it's because, you know, accumulation of bad diet, overuse of antibiotics creates the bad gut microbiome, which happens over years, which happens to coincide with the part of the theory that says it happens because you're getting older. But it's nothing to do with wear and tear. It really is to do with a gut that is persistently being badly treated, not cared for, which is manifesting these various infections, which we call osteoarthritis and countless other diseases so you're really interesting because i mean it just it does really does turn on its head our understanding of this disease and therefore how we treat it i mean to me really interesting area thanks lynn so continuing on the theme of the gut another fascinating piece of research has just come out that demonstrates that the gut and the gut bacteria actually talks to the brain and influences central nervous system diseases. And uh, in particular, they're talking about Parkinson's disease, but it could be other uh, diseases as well, such as paralysis and stroke. And um, they've done some research into this, and it really is very, very interesting. They discovered that microbes in the gut produce compounds that prime our immune cells to destroy harmful viruses in the brain and nervous system. So therefore, it's almost as if the, the master control is in the gut itself, even with neurological issues. So therefore, a poor diet, overuse of antibiotics again, are affecting gut bacteria, which, known, which we call the microbiome, and it makes people more susceptible to these central nervous system diseases. I mean, the, the, the work's been done at the University of Utah, and uh, they've been testing it out on, uh, well, they tested it out a couple of years ago on mice. 
But now they've taken it a stage further and actually tried it on people and found exactly the same results. And they're saying, well, look, you know, if you have to have antibiotics, do make sure that you afterwards feed the gut good stuff with pre and probiotics to restore the good gut balance, because otherwise you're going to be open to, we saw it in with the earlier uh, podcast, open to osteoarthritis, but also open to these other diseases which you never would have dreamt had anything at all to do with the gut. Absolutely. I mean, things like multiple sclerosis, which has always been considered, you know, just a purely neurological disease. Um, they are also finding that there are certain bugs that are uh, showing up, either mimicking MS or causing true MS. And one of them is called a syn a synoterbac. Uh, I think it's synoterbac. Cynotobacter hmm. um, uh, bug, which is associated now with MS. So, and there are other th other kinds of bugs that are specifically associated with other kinds of autoimmune illnesses. Uh, we talked before about thyroid. Um, loads of people in the world have a thing called blastocystis, mm. blastocystis hominum, mm. very common bug, and that can cause a low thyroid. And not surprisingly, we've got, you know, one in 20 people in the UK, one in 16 people in the US have a thyroid problem. Yeah. So these bugs are ubiquitous, and it has a lot to do with overuse of antibiotics, and also just our poor diet, as you yeah. say, Brian. Yeah. So I think the first place, there was a book called The Second Brain mm. about the gut and how the gut talks to the brain, and it's the information from the gut that goes first, not the other way around. Mm. And so we really have to look at the, at the gut as mm. the sort of seat of biological intelligence and always take that into account mm. when we're looking at illness. It's, uh, in fact, it's the first brain, not the second, it seems. You betcha. And it's interesting you say about MS, multiple sclerosis. These same researchers did say, yes, we accept that you know, viral infection in the brain and spinal cords, uh, spinal cord are thought to be a, a catalyst for MS itself. But that in turn, the, the viral infection in the first place could well come from the gut. So really interesting, again, that, you know, it seems to be increasingly, with almost any disease, the first place to look is the gut. You betcha. And so to our third gut-related story. You know, weight gain, weight loss, it seems to be an endless problem, certainly for some people. And um, even if they eat Similar diets to others who seem to successfully shed the pounds. There are some who don't seem able to do so. And there does seem to be an X factor in all this, which is beyond just the food they eat and indeed the exercise that they take, although we do know that has a very minimal part to play in that. And needless to say, it goes back to the gut, or so it seems. Um, there's a type of bacteria in the gut, uh, called Acamantia mucinifila. I'm sure that's been mispronounced, but we'll go with it, um, which seems to regulate weight gain and even type 2 diabetes, which, of course, is always associated with 
with weight as well. And um, people who are have it have difficulty putting the, getting the weight off, and indeed, you know, uh, in the and, and just putting the weight on in the first place, seem to have very low stores of this particular bacterium. Whereas slimmer folks seem to have ample supplies of it, which is regulating the food they and their metabolism. And um, they've checked this out in a series of experiments. And um, actually used it with using a supplement, because you can get Akkermansia supplements, mm. and um, found that it just so that these supplements, and it seems to be a pasteurized version of these supplements in particular, seem to help people lose weight. So over and above the food they're eating and the amount of food they're eating, taking this supplement actually helped people to lose the weight. And um, again, it, was, it took just three months, apparently, and then uh, the, the, the average weight loss was about 2.3 kilo, which is five pounds in old money. And also cholesterol levels were down. Um, but uh, they also tested with other people who were given dummy supplements, the ones who didn't have any active ingredient, and of course they just carried on with uh, with the same weight levels they had before. I mean, it's not surprising to me to see that diet um, and uh, certain kinds of bacteria, once again, mm. is related to weight gain or loss. Mm. Um there's a really bit interesting bit of research about the latest way to treat bad gut issues. You know, for instance, with people who have inflammatory bowel disease and who are not getting better, um, they use fecal transplants, which means transplants of fecal matter from a healthy person. And so they've done this and with so, a great deal of success. The only issue, though, is... With some of the recipients, suddenly they find they're gaining a lot more weight than they did before. And it's not just related to being able to digest food. It has to do with something about taking on the personality of the person they received the fecal transplant from or the biology of them. Um, and it, usually in those situations when they gained a lot of weight, mm. the fecal transplant has come from an overweight person. For instance, one woman was really suffering from uh, a bad gut. And so her daughter was the donor um, for, for the transplant. And that worked really well, this fecal transplant, and it sorted her gut out. But she suddenly gained 70 pounds, mm. and her daughter was wow. quite, quite overweight too mm. and couldn't shift it. So it really suggests, this is a very interesting piece because it really mm. suggests a lot of our ability to gain or lose weight has nothing to do with what we're stuffing our faces with to some degree, hmm. but it may have also to do with the quality of bacteria in the gut. Which, which helps us process it. Yeah. Really interesting. Thanks, Lynn. Okay, away from the gut, onto the mouth. Yes. Yes. And uh, if your local dentist has a secret, it's this, that he doesn't actually use amalgam anymore. Right, years ago, not so long ago, um, they were always using amalgam fillings, yeah, because they were very. It's a very malleable material, 
and it's also very durable. The trouble is it also contains 50% mercury, and that uh, can cause all sorts of health issues, and we covered this many times in the past, and there have been pioneering doctors and dentists, more to the point, who have helped us in this to demonstrate just how uh, toxic that material can be, especially once it's in the mouth and starts releasing into the body when you chew. And uh, the Germans were one of the first to get onto this, and they stopped uh, putting them into the mouths of pregnant women. But um, the EU, uh, bless its cotton socks, has actually made it a very public thing now and says that every member state must stop using dental amalgam. And um, there is a timetable for this rolling out, but thus far in the last few weeks, Ireland, Finland and Slovakia have all announced they are on board and they will be banning it in dental surgeries in the next couple of years. So they are joining Sweden and Norway have already uh, uh, implemented the ban. And um, in the meantime, they're all saying, well, look, we won't um, put it into pregnant women or breastfeeding women and in children under the age of 15. I mean, it's just one of these amazing things that the dental associations around the world have been running away from this thing for the longest time and have been always been saying, this is perfectly safe, there's nothing wrong with this material, when uh, quietly they've stopped using it. And now it's been explicitly banned by the EU and no doubt others while quietly tiptoeing away from it. I mean, the American Dental Association still openly supports it, but unofficially, again, telling members not to use this stuff. Um, yeah, and there's lots of reasons why they are tiptoeing away from it rather than openly saying, we, we, we made a bit of a mistake here, guys. You know, for the last hundred years, we've been using this stuff, and you know what? We really shouldn't. And, you know, the, the most obvious concern would be that of national panic, because everyone will want their amalgam fillings removed immediately. Secondly, there's an enormous litigious issue here, because if it, it could be demonstrated that the dental associations were aware that amalgam fillings were dangerous, then there's all sorts of um, suits at play, which could be, you know, they could if they could demonstrate that an amalgam filling actually had something to do with a neurological problem, which they think is the most likely type of problem triggered by amalgam fillings well you know there's billions and billions and billions of pounds and dollars would have to be paid out well this is quite infuriating because when i think of a number of the pioneers who were um the canaries in the mine mm. um complaining about am amalgam fillings and all of the dangers and also doing research so that was Dr. Hal Huggins in America and Dr. Vimy in Canada, who did a series of experiments. This is like in the early 90s, I think, um, with sheep. And he, he was able to track exactly where this amalgam f was going, that it wasn't staying inert in the mouth of these sheep. It was going um, into the gut. It was causing abnormalities in the gut and bacterial resistance, um, setting you up for all the gut problems we were talking about before. He found that they really affected kidneys and they the animals operated like they were had, had one kidney. 
So, and then of course, Huggins was doing loads of um, surveying of his patients before and afterward, and had an enormous survey showing the health improvement and the overcoming of a raft of illnesses once these patients had their amalgam fillings out. And of course, there's loads and loads of other research. It was going on for years and years, showing the stuff was really dangerous. So as you say, you see an entire um, um, medical community essentially shirking any kind of responsibility. At very least, they're not using it anymore. That Thankfully, they're not using it. So subsequent generations won't have to go through some of the things we've gone through, our generation has gone through. But because they're shirking the responsibility of culpability, um, for all those people who have suffered for so many years and not been able to get an answer, um, when the answer was right there in their mouths, um, there should have been compensation. Who's popping their aspirin every day? Well, everyone is. Of course they are. There's been stacks and stacks of publicity about taking an aspirin a day, especially after the age of 60 or 70, because it's going to stop heart disease and it's going to stop a stroke. Everyone does it. Of course they do. Good stuff. Actually not, because um, this year they made another announcement which said, actually, we looked at the data. You know what? We're wrong. In fact, the, 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 the risks far outweigh the benefits. And of course, the risks are primarily stomach bleeding and often stomach bleeding so severe that it can be lethal. But the funny thing is that whilst the world was extolled to take aspirin every day, we were, this piece of news doesn't seem to have got through in quite the same way. No one's been screaming this from the rafters in the same way that the original uh, advice was. And um, the American Heart Association changed its advice this year and said that everyone over the age of 70 should stop taking low-dose aspirin every day because unless the only people who should take it are people who have existing heart problems or have already suffered a heart attack. Otherwise, don't touch it, guys, because the risks are greater than the benefits. And... Um, it's the message is just not getting through because the researchers from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center did a, did a survey and found out substantial numbers of over 70s are still taking an aspirin every day. Many of them are self-medicating and not telling their doc that they're doing so because they, yeah, because I think aspirin's got this position now. It's a harmless pill which you pop, it's all good for you, no problems at all. And I think people don't even think to tell their doctor they're taking it, because it's almost like taking a, you know, a vitamin. It, you, and I think that's the way it is often viewed. But they found that um, well over half of the over 70s were taking uh, an aspirin routinely every day, uh, purely as a preventative. And yet, as I say, the message never got through that they should be stopping. Absolutely. I mean, I think as you say, the myth is that aspirin is so benign. You know, it's as safe as aspirin. Mm. You know, that's what people think about. And there's nothing safe about aspirin. It causes so many deaths, thousands and thousands, mm. hundreds of thousands mm. of deaths mm. from gastrointestinal bleeding. Yeah. Yeah. And the evidence about its prevention 
and preventive abilities with heart disease are, you know, are really questionable. Well, I remember doing research on this some years ago and found that about 30,000 deaths a year are caused by aspirin and never recorded as such because it never occurred to anybody that aspirin was even worth reporting. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I'm, and uh, so interesting about, you know, how effective aspirin is. I was really fascinated to see um, the work at Princeton's uh, Pear Research Lab, um, uh, the Princeton's Engineering Anomalous Research Lab, uh, run by the late Robert John. They studied, you know, hundreds of thousands of tests of seeing whether or not people could, mind could affect a machine and a random process in a machine. So they ran all of these very well-controlled studies. The upshot was they had a small but significant effect. It was just a 52% effect over chance, which sounds like nothing, except the effect size was 10 times larger mm -hmm. than that of aspirin. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's more effective yeah. to sit in front of a, a computer mm. and will it with your mind mm. to do something, change mm. something about a random process, than to take a, an aspirin. But isn't it funny also that the news to take something always sort of outpaces, outshouts the other news that says you should stop taking something? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thanks, Lynn. It's all in your genes. There's nothing you can do about it. It's all predetermined. You know, that's, that's, the, that's the general message of, of medicine and indeed of biology, isn't it? That our genes determine who we are and what we will suffer from. And um, pretty much, you know, medicine goes along with this. And they just said, there's nothing you do. And women do have breasts removed and goodness knows what else because they have a certain genetic Imprinting, which means they're much more likely to get something, right? Well, there's been an, a study which rather overturns that and found that actually, no, that in fact, even a healthy lifestyle, good food, exercise, even not smoking is considered a good lifestyle, um, reduces the risk of dementia by about 30%. But the point of the story is, but it's in people who have a genetic predisposition to develop the condition in the first place. Mm. So a good diet, or including not smoking, actually overwrites the genetic code and dramatically reduces the risk just by doing that. And because um, you know, these people are, the, is, are particularly destined, according to biology, to eventually develop uh, dementia. And they, um, they did a test amongst about 196,000 people who have this genetic uh, predisposition and, uh, and found that by changing their diet, having a healthy lifestyle, you know, they, they reduce their risk quite dramatically. Um, so, in fact, it's, well, it's known as epigenetics, isn't it? Something you know a lot about, Lynn. Well, I, you know, I'm not surprised to hear this. Mm. I mean, nor will anybody out there who's read Bruce Lipton's book, mm. The Biology of, of Belief, or my book, The Bond. Um, you know, I talked about a lot of studies that show that essentially our genes are like the keys of a piano. They sit there silently until they get played or expressed. And what plays them 
is not, you know, our inbuilt genetic code, but a quartet of atoms that sit above the genes called the epigenome. And that is exquisitely affected by the environment, everything from the food we eat to, and the water we drink to even the friends we have. You know, everything we do in our life, everything about our lifestyle contributes to affecting this little quartet and expressing genes. So it is all about how we live our lives in total, whether we have friends, whether we have a, a close-knit community, all of this will determine whether even genetic risks, you know, people of mm-hmm. who have a certain propensity to something will actually have it have it uh, expressed. Mm, very interesting. Very hopeful last uh, story there, I think, Lynn. Um, so on which positive note, nothing is written. We can all rewrite our lives and our biology. And so that's it for another week. I'm Brian Hubbard. And I'm Lynn McTaggart. Okay. And thanks for listening. What doctors don't tell you? WDDTY.com. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you.